Good morning. Welcome. Glad you're here. If you're here for the first time this morning, I want to invite you. Clint may have done this already, but it uh, can't hurt to do it again, to invite you to that little table over there after we finish uh, with our corporate worship time this morning. You can grab some information about um, us as a church, uh, what we believe, what we are about. Uh, we want to invite you to do that. It would be a treat for us to have a chance to connect to you. Uh, also, you can uh, fill out that little card in the seat back in front of you, if you would. It would give us a chance to... Uh, follow up with you. Uh, I promise you it's be very subtle follow-up. We want um, to follow up, but we don't want to inundate you with, uh, overwhelm you, maybe a better word, with too much information. Just want to have a chance to connect. So um, I'm going to pray, but I, you know, as I was sitting back there listening and singing this morning, I was thinking about the fact that I, I really, really enjoy corporate worship. That's what we call this. We, if you're stick around Crosspoint long enough, You'll find that most folks that have been around Crosspoint a while don't say we go to church because we believe we are the church. And those semantics are, it's more than semantics. Those words are important. If you say you go to church, then we fear it could become an activity, just another activity among your schedule or among a, a bunch of activities. It could also be contained into a place in space, not only in time, but in space and geography. You may think that this is somehow something separate from what you're supposed to be the rest of the week because when you go to church. So we use a different language here. And if you mess up, that's okay. Nobody will scold you or hope, you, hope nobody will make you feel foolish. But we try on purpose to say we are the church. We don't go to church. We go to corporate worship. And that's what this is. And it's such a unique thing. I don't know if this has ever struck you. I, I grew up in the church. My earliest memories uh, were weekly being in corporate worship with my family, uh, my parents. And, um, but if you really think about it, it's such a strange thing. I mean, it really is. I'm standing back there singing and thinking about what other thing do we ever do during the week or month or year, for that matter, where we all get together and we sing some songs together. You know, no, you didn't choose them. Someone else chooses them, and they guide you and lead you through some songs. I mean, it's like nothing else that we do. And this too, I mean, it, it struck me a number of times in the middle of a sermon while I'm preaching, what a unique thing this is. Where you're sitting and listening and hearing something that you believe, I hope you believe, is life-altering and life-giving weekly. Where else do we do that? It is such a cool thing. I, I need it. It's my most, um, it used to not be my most treasured hour two hours. <laughs> it, it used to not be my most treasured couple hours because I was so nervous about what everybody thought of how I did. And that's young preacher issues. And I, I, that sneaks up on you every now and again, but it's been a long time since I've cared too much about that. So now I can really enjoy it. And I hope y'all are ready to enjoy how we're going to spend these next few minutes. I hope you've enjoyed already that we've sung some things that are absolutely true to an invisible God who is more real than anything we could possibly know. An eternal God that loves us, that cares about us, that has a message for every single one of us today. What a great God. What a great thing we've already participated in. Let's continue in prayer, and then we'll move into our message. Let's pray. God, we, first of all, just want to thank you for giving us an opportunity to gather weekly. Well, corporate worship is such a wonderful and strange thing. I'm thankful that it's not like anything else 
that I experience from day to day or week to week. I'm thankful that it's just so unique. Lord, I pray that it would never be something that's routine and mundane for me or anyone here, that we would see it weekly as an opportunity to sit with our Creator and with His people and enjoy you and enjoy what you've done for us in Christ, to bask in your love, to sing true things back to you about you, to remind one another about these true things, to shake a hand or put an arm around one another and to express love and appreciation and enjoyment of each other as well. What a beautiful thing, this corporate worship, Lord. We are thankful. We're thankful this morning that we have a chance to participate in this. We want to pray also as we gather this morning, we want to pray for another church in our community. I want to pray for family fellowship, Lord. We want to ask that you would just bless family fellowship as a church body and church family, that they would have problem issues like um, where to seat everybody and how many services to have or uh, where to start new churches um, because they're full to capacity or um, that they have too many teachers, too many people wanting to teach and equip the saints for the work of service. I just pray they'll have some really good problems like that. Uh, they may have them already, Lord. We just uh, delighted the chance to lift them up this morning. I'm thankful for Paul Blue and for his ministry and his, for his, um, not just his ministry to his church, but his ministry to his family. I don't, don't know his family, but I want to lift them up this morning. I want to pray first for his marriage, that it is rich and strong and healthy, and that he is equipped um, uh, through worship to be, first of all, a husband, and second of all, a father, and third of all, a pastor. And um, pray that you would bless the ministry of family fellowship, and we're thankful for the chance to lift them up this morning. Lord, I pray that you would guide our time together this morning in these next few minutes, that we would um, bask in uh, the love of Christ, and that together we would hear that um, clarion almost, that just single message of an amazing love. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to do something different this morning. I have a... Uh, Someone blessed me with an iPad, and um, some dear brother and his wife blessed me with an iPad, just gratis, brand new, in the box, this real crisp, you know, box, and just awesomeness. Uh, this was a couple years ago. I had it for about six hours before Christy took it from me, and I haven't gotten it back since. So I'm reading a little excerpt from a Kindle on my phone, which is just ridiculous. I, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. I hope that I can do this. Um, it's a little bit longer than maybe a typical excerpt someone might read. It's a, a section in a book called You Are What You Love by a guy named James Smith. Uh, James Smith is a professor in a college in, um, I believe it's in California, it's Cal Calvin College. A wonderful speaker. You can pull up his YouTube videos or some of the YouTube videos of this guy, James K. A. Smith. He's got two initials, so just there are probably lots of James Smith, so who knows what you could come up with if you don't put in the K.A., so maybe that's why he uses it. Long introduction. Here's the excerpt from his book called um, You Are What You Love, and it's about the mall. Okay, so this is why all of us either can, can relate likely with affection or hatred for the mall, but we have some sort of response to the mall, so listen to this. 
One of my quiet moments of parental success was the day our oldest son, then a young teenager, asked me, Dad, can you drive me to the temple? I knew what he meant immediately. We had recently had a discussion in which I tried to impress upon him that the local mall is actually one of the most religious sites in town, but not because it's, because it's preaching a message or touting a doctrine. No one meets you at the door of the mall and gives you their statement of faith that lists the 16 things the mall believes. The mall doesn't believe anything, and it isn't interested in engaging your intellect. Its targets are lower. But don't think that means the mall is a neutral space. I'm going to read that line again because this is going to get at the heart of the sermon this morning. A few lines out of this I might read twice. Don't think that means the mall is a neutral space. And don't think that means the mall isn't religious. The mall is a religious site, not because it's theological, but because it's liturgical. Its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or messages, but in its rituals. The mall doesn't care what you think, but is very much interested in what you love. Victoria's secret is that she's actually after your heart. Victoria's secret is that she is actually after your heart. So you need to readjust your eyes to see this familiar place. He's going to, in the next uh, little section here, sort of walk us into the mall. Put on a liturgical lens and look at your local mall again. Read its spaces and practices, its rituals. What might you see? Upon approach, the architecture of the building has a recognizable code that makes us feel at home no matter what city we're in. The large glass atriums at the entrances are framed by banners and flags. Familiar texts and symbols on the exterior walls help the foreign faithful quickly and easily identify what's inside. And the sprawling layout of the building is anchored by the larger pavilions or sanctuaries akin to the vestibules of medieval cathedrals. We arrive at one of several grandiose entries to the building, channeling us through a colonnade of chromed arches to the towering glass face with doors lining its base. As we enter the space, we're ushered into a narthex of sorts. That's a lobby. It's an old-fashioned, actually, it's an ancient church building. Basilicas had what they called narthex, which is like a lobby. As we enter the space, we're ushered into a narthex of sorts, intended for receiving, orienting, and channeling new seekers, as well as providing a bit of decompression space for the regular faithful to enter in to the spirit of the space. <laughs> this is a good, cracks me up, it's hilarious. For the seeker, there's a large map, a kind of worship aid to help orient the novice to the location of various spiritual offerings and provide direction into the labyrinth that organizes and channels the ritual observances of the pilgrimage or the pilgrims. One can readily recognize the regulars, the faithful who enter the space with a sense of achieved familiarity, who know the rhythms by heart because of habit-forming repetition. (laughs) The design of the interior is inviting to an almost excessive degree, drawing both seekers and the faithful into the enclosed interior spaces. With windows on the ceiling open to the sky, but none on the walls opening to the surrounding moat of automobiles. The sense conveyed is one of vertical or transcendent openness that at the same time shuts off the clamor and distractions of the horizontal, mundane world. This architectural mode of enclosure and enfolding suggests sanctuary, retreat, and escape 
From the narthex, entry one is invited to lose oneself in this space that channels the pilgrim into a labyrinth of octagons and circles, inviting a wandering that seems to escape from the driven, goal-oriented ways we inhabit the outside world. The pilgrim is also invited to escape from the mundane ticking of clock, time to inhabit a space governed by a different time, even a sort of timelessness. With few windows and a curious Baroque manipulation of light, it almost seems as if the sun stands still in its space as we lose consciousness of time's passing and so lose ourselves in the rituals for which we've come. However, while daily clock time is suspended, the worship space is still governed by a kind of liturgical festal calendar, variously draped in the colors, symbols, and images of an unending litany of holidays and festivals to which new ones are regularly added, since the establishment of each new festival translates into greater numbers of pilgrims joining the processions to the sanctuary and engaging in worship. This is almost done, so stick with me. The layout of this temple has architectural echoes that harken back to medieval cathedrals. Mammoth religious spaces designed to absorb all kinds of religious activities happening at one time. And so one might say that this religious building has a winding labyrinth for contemplation, alongside of which are innumerable chapels devoted to various saints. That's the last paragraph, so good. As we wander the labyrinth in contemplation, preparing to enter one of the chapels, we'll be struck by the rich iconography, uh, iconography that lines the walls and interior spaces. Unlike the flattened depictions of saints one might find in stained glass windows, here one finds an array of three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that, as with all iconography, inspires our desire to be imitators of these exemplars. These statues and icons, called mannequins, embody for us concrete images of the good life. They are the ideals of perfection to which we will learn to aspire. It's a book I think that'll be worth reading. I've just launched into it myself and just found that section to share with us this morning. I need to make sure this doesn't ring at us this morning. One of the things that we're going to do this morning is we're going to consider a prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church to deal with Victoria's secret. To deal with a message from the world that you can consider in the mall that is screaming for your affection and that is after your affection, and that actually in some ways has some affection for you. Turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Paul's prayer this morning that we're going to consider goes from verses 14 through 19, and it is a prayer for a heart. He's praying for the Ephesian church that they would have a heart that hears first and best, and maybe only, the clarion message of Christ's love for the Ephesians over all other loves. Christ's love for the Ephesians over the love of all others, I should say, to qualify that. Over and above the love of all others. 
I'm going to start with verse 14 and 15 and sort of get us acquainted with it, and then we're going to break this passage down into three sections. Let me acquaint you with how we're going to break that down. There are, I've mentioned in the past, if you've been here before, occasionally we bump into something called a henna clause. In Greek, it's a, a word that in Greek means in order that or so that or for the purpose of. It's translated different ways in our versions depending on where it is contextually and depending on what version that you have. In this passage, there are three of them. There's actually one that looks like a fourth in here that's actually not a henna clause. We're going to actually follow those three henna clauses to help us make sense of this prayer to break it down into essentially the three things that Paul is asking for for the Ephesian church. Okay, that's our plan, and I'll acquaint you with those three things in a moment. But first, let's look at verses 14 and 15. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. For this reason is simply pointing back to where Paul was going before chapter 3. If you remember from last week, Paul sort of had a, a digression in verses 1 through 13. But before that, in chapter 2, what he was dealing with was the reality of Jew and Gentile being reconciled by the work of Christ. The believing Jew and Gentile, the most different people on the face of the earth, actually can become and do become one through Christ's work. We considered it and called it the second half of the good news, the second half of the gospel that God would reconcile Jew and Gentile. So it's for that reason Paul prays. And that's such good news to Paul. It compels him to pray for the Ephesian church. And he prays for three things. Now these three, three things, let me tell you, as we consider them this morning, they're not parallel things. They're not three parallel things, one, two, and three. Consider them almost stairs or stair steps. The first thing that he prays for is actually leading to the second thing that he prays for. And the second thing that he prays for actually leads to the ultimate, the third thing that he prays for. So visualize them as three steps that we're going to climb here in these next few minutes. We're just going to take a few minutes and unpack the passage. And then we're going to ask a weird question of this prayer. Let me point out, though, before we consider these three things, what Paul does not pray for. Paul doesn't pray that they'll have good jobs. Okay? He doesn't pray for health. He doesn't pray that they will have um, uh, good plumbing or good electricity. They obviously didn't have those things in those days. He doesn't pray for ease. He doesn't pray for comfort. He doesn't pray for the wind to their back. He doesn't pray for these things for people in the church in Ephesus that likely cost them everything when they followed Christ. It likely cost them everything. They would have to disconnect from the worship of Artemis or the pagan worship and that current or that, that commerce that went along with that worship. They would have to participate in different things altogether. They may lose their way of making money. They may have been destitute. But Paul's not praying for job, health, comfort, and ease. Paul prays for something that's oh so much more important. And consider, too, that Paul is in chains, literally, not figuratively. He's in chains as he prays this prayer. He's not praying, get me out of jail. He's chained to a Roman guard. So hopefully that should give us a sense of the gravity of the three things he's asking for, or these three steps of what he's praying. It must be pretty, pretty doggone important. 
So let's look at the first in verses 16 and 17. This is the first henna clause that starts with the word that. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, that would be the Ephesian church, and especially the Gentiles in the Ephesian church, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that, that's what I was saying might look like a henna clause, but really isn't. That word that is actually not even there in the original language. You could think of it almost as one big thought. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul asks a rich God. He acknowledges right up front in this prayer that God, you have all the riches and we are poor. You have all the goods to answer and, and to provide and deliver what I'm asking for here. You are the rich one. We are the poor ones. He asks a rich God that the Ephesians would be strengthened through their spirit in the inner being so Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. He's not asking for conversion here. He's praying for people that are already part of a church. What he's talking about here is that, that Christ's presence would be there through the work of the Holy Spirit by measure. I found a nice quote from one of my commentaries that said, in some, Christ is just present. In others, he is prominent. In others yet, he is ultimate. You know what I'm talking about, those different measures of faith and that different measure of maturity in the faith and that different measure of the presence of Christ. And what we should be praying for here along with Paul is that we all move from that continuum of just present to prominent to ultimate. That's what Paul's praying for for this church, is that Christ would be there ultimately. He's praying for, I think, what really oftentimes plays out in maturity and in time and oftentimes through trials and circumstance, that this people would grow up in Christ. The word that he chooses for dwelling is an interesting word. There are different words that you could use for dwelling, but this word implies real abode, like really moving in. He's praying that Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, would really move into this people. I grew up in a home in Louisiana. Uh, it was built in 1857 old, old home. It was a home that was not destroyed during the Civil War, one of the few. Uh, my parents um, bought this home when I was in third grade. They lived there up until this last year, so that would be over 40 years. We, my brothers and I, I have an older brother and younger brother, and our families spent a lot of time helping them move. Okay, you can imagine when you live somewhere for 40 years, moving will not be an easy thing. Adding insult to injury, my parents like to go to Canton. <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about or where I'm going with this? Anybody uh, know somebody that likes to go to Canton? Like you walk around and you go, hey, we need this. And you're going, wait a second. I didn't know that we needed that. I mean, before showing up here, do we really need it? And we use the term need very loosely. You go, you make a troop, uh, I, I would say, 100 trips to Canton, like my parents probably did over the years. And their house that they lived in for 40 years was well lived in, full of stuff. It took weeks and weeks and weeks to move them out. 
I think in some ways what Paul is praying for here for the Ephesian church is he's praying for what we should want. That Christ dwelling within our hearts is well established and growing more established by the year. That Jesus would make a bunch of trips to Canton. All right, I use that illustration really loosely, so don't take that too far. But I'm talking that he would really move in and make himself comfortable in us so that it'd be really hard to move out. That's what he's praying for in the Ephesian church. The first thing that he's asked for here in this first in a clause is that this church would be strengthened with power. That's the first thing. Let's look at the second thing. In that, um, It's really the second part of verse 17. 17b is where we'll pick up. Here's the second hint of clause. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What he's praying for here, this second thing, this second step on this little tiny three-step stairwell is that they would have strength to comprehend the love of Christ. He's prayed for strength already. And now he's praying that this strength would help them comprehend what he later calls unknowable and incomprehensible. It's fitting and appropriate that he's going to pray for it if it's something that we can't muster. It's something that you can't give somebody. It's something that only comes from him. And there's three really cool conditions right here in this passage for knowing the love of Christ. Three very practical conditions right here in this passage. And the first is the fact that you have to have strength to know the love of Christ. And the fact that he's praying that they would be able to know the love of Christ, that suggests, again, like I said, it's not something you can muster, but it's something that can only come from him. In the verse before, he refers to it as power, that you actually have have power from God to understand and comprehend the love of Christ. We can't love him. We can't understand his love for us without his enabling us to do so. So prayer is fitting, of course. Prayer makes sense then. Asking this for our children, asking this for one another, asking this for our people. Lord, enable us, empower us to know the love of Christ. That's the first condition, is it's got to come from him. The second condition is that it's rooted and grounded in love Look at it right here in this passage. In the beginning of that that section I just read, verse 17b, that you being rooted and grounded in love. You can't know the love of Christ except that you are rooted and grounded in love. First, except that he gives it to you. And second, you have to be rooted and grounded in love. Let me help you with that. If you've been here at Crosspoint since we began in, in, in uh, Ephesians, you, these will be familiar to you. If you haven't been, all you have to do is go read the last three chapters. And you'll find how Paul is taking them to being rooted and grounded in love. The root and ground of love refers to God having chosen them. Chapter 1, verse 4. It refers to God having predestined them in love. Verse 5, having redeemed them in verse 7, having made them his inheritance. Verse 11, having sealed them with the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, having made them alive with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5, having raised them with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6, having seated them with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6, 
And having made them one new person in place of Jew and Gentile, having made them an entirely new humanity, the second half of chapter 2, being rooted and grounded in love in these things, they'll find strength to comprehend the comprehensible. There's no way to know the love of Christ without engaging these massive realities. That's why we took our time with them. That's why if you don't know these realities, I urge you, go back and listen to the series. It began in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Man, you need to know those things. You can't know the love of Christ without being rooted and grounded in what God has done for us in Christ. And the third condition for knowing the love of Christ is found in the phrase that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. This little qualifier here with all the saints suggests that the pursuit of the knowledge of Christ, that knowing the love of Christ and comprehending the love of Christ is not a lone venture. It's not just you and Jesus. Let me just shoot that elephant right now. Your faith and your journey of faith is not supposed to be just you and Jesus. Right here with all the saints suggests that this is not a lone venture. The reality is you won't come to comprehend and know the love of Christ on your own and in isolation. It is meant to be known and meant to be comprehended with the other saints as they're pursuing it as well. It's not a lone venture. It's those who love the company of God's people who are best positioned to comprehend and know the love of Christ. I'm going to say that again because I want you to hear it and I want you to receive that. It's those who love the company of God's people who are best positioned to comprehend and know the love of Christ. Going it alone, just you and Jesus, you can't know the love of Christ. You have to be rooted and grounded in love. He has to give it to you and you have to seek it with all the saints. It's not even possible to know the love of Christ without these three things. It's a figment. It's a figment of your imagination without these three things. It's a sentiment, really. But it's not the real love of Christ that you're knowing and comprehending. Together, we come to know, as he grants it to us, being grounded in deep and strong doctrinal realities that I just mentioned to you, just listed for you. That's how we come to know the vastness of the love of Christ. So the second thing that he's prayed for here is strength to comprehend and know the love of Christ. And the third thing is right there in the last part of that last verse, verse 19, the second part of verse 19. That's the third henna clause, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. This is the top step. The first step is he's prayed for strength. The second step is that they would have strength to know and comprehend the love of Christ. And the third step is that they would experience the fullness of God. Paul prayed for strength to comprehend the love of Christ in order that they would be filled with the fullness of God. Solomon declared that heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God. So what's he talking about here? I liked an illustration that one of my commentators used in what he's asking for here. The Ephesians would experience the totality of God's blessings and presence. He used this illustration. 
like the teacup on the seashore, is filled to overflowing with the swelling water of the vast ocean. It's a nice image of what he's asking for here, that they would experience the fullness of God. So the three things he's asked for in summary is strength, strength to comprehend and know the love of Christ, and third, fullness, that they would experience the fullness of God. It's a nice prayer, isn't it? If you're like me, you're like, okay, that's a nice prayer. I studied this prayer for weeks trying to kind of get prepared for this Sunday morning. But a question I've been asking myself is a question, is, is Gary Carroll this morning? Gary brought this up in our Wednesday morning prayer time. He said, that's a weird prayer. Gary, remember that? Gary said, that's kind of an odd thing to ask for. I was like, I know, right? Let's think about what he's actually asking for here. Is strength to comprehend the love of Christ. He's not praying for strength to love Christ. That'd be a prayer that we could all kind of understand that would make sense. But he's asking for strength to comprehend and know the love of Christ. Let me personalize this for you a little bit. I want you to imagine for a moment how strange it would be for a wife to share with some other ladies that she needs prayer so that she can know and comprehend the love of her husband. If I were a wife sitting there and I heard someone else ask that, share that request, I would probably think, ooh, homeboy's love must be pretty thin. Right? I'm thinking, well, it must be pretty weak for a wife to have to ask other wives, hey, can you pray for me that I will know and comprehend my husband's love? The other wives are going to be sitting there thinking, oh, you poor thing. You poor thing. But we know that's not the case here. Because he's already talked about it being vast. The length, the width, the depth, the height. The massive love of Christ. We don't have to think that, well, he's asking for prayer because it's wafer thin or weak. But we should ask the question, why ask for strength to know and comprehend the love of Christ? We have to ask the question. And we have to deal with the thought, first of all, that Christ's love for us doesn't seem like it should take work to know and comprehend. Anybody else see that with me and Gary? It's a weird prayer. It kind of bums me out that we have to ask for it. But I want to understand why we have to ask for it. Because maybe then I'll appreciate it. That's where I want to take you in these next few minutes. I want you to consider that maybe praying for strength to comprehend and know the love of Christ is a great prayer because there's so much competition. There's so many lovers that are after us. A mall full, maybe. A world full. So many other things or activities are people loving us. Emphasis with air quotes. Loving us that in contrast, his voice, his work, his cross might seem thin, though we know it's not. It might seem like it's not enough, though we know it is. Man, that's a good prayer if that's a consideration. Man, I cannot tell you how many times I'm in counseling with people that are dealing with marital issues or dealing with life issues or just struggling with things. And then we start talking faith matters. And I kind of get this thousand-yard stare like, 
You got anything else? We start talking about Jesus' love for them and what God has done for them through Christ and the cross. And like, man, I've already got that. Can you give me something else that's really going to help me? Can you help me figure out how my wife and I won't argue? Like some things that, sh- that I might say to not trigger the whole thing or to perpetuate the whole thing. I get those. I get that, that, that desire. What a great tip that would be. But really what's coupled in behind that or coupled with that and seen behind that a lot of times is it look like you have anything other than Jesus loving me because I need something else. I'm not sure that that's thick enough. I think this was likely true in Ephesus, true enough for Paul to pray for this, and it's true in Greenville, true enough for us to consider it and to pray for this for one another because we have competing lovers as well. There's a couple passages I want you to turn to. Really, this is the only one that you really need to turn to, but I want you to turn there because I want you to see it. Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. I'll also be reading three passages from Jeremiah, but you can just listen to those. I'll tell you what they are if you want to jot them down. But Let's consider some competing lovers. The thing I want you to, to, to think, think about these next few minutes, it's a little bit outside the box. It was for me. It may not be for you. I've often thought about my love for other things and how easily I can love the wrong things. But it's not before this sermon and not before preparing for this sermon that I think I've had a conscious thought about other things loving me and wanting my affection and my heart. I think it's only been coming up to this sermon that I've considered that Victoria's Secret actually is, that she wants my heart. So let's look at Proverbs chapter 7. This is uh, counsel. You can just imagine a wise father sitting down with his son. Some great counsel from a father to his son here in this chapter. My son, keep my words, beginning in verse 1, and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call inside your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman. Okay, we're going to consider this forbidden woman in these next few verses. From the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice, and I've seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. It's like the wise father is encouraging the son here, don't be this kid. Don't be the kid that I'm about to describe to you. I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner. Mistake number one. Passing by her corner, taking the road to her house. All those things, they make sense. It's us taking the initiative to go get ourselves in a mess. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and of darkness. And behold, the woman meets him. Makes sense so far. Dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. Okay, those things all make a lot of sense. Now look what goes down next. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. The mall is not neutral. This wily woman does not stay at home for you just to go find her. 
See, for years I've thought about idolatry being these inanimate objects that I go after. I want you to think about those idols as actually actually going after you. She's wily and she doesn't stay at home. She's loud. She's wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Watch what she does next. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. That sounds like the Matrix or something. It sounds like like a movie. Like where she just materializes. I turn the corner and there she is again. Oh, no. And I turn the corner and there she is again. Everywhere I look, there she is. It's crazy. She doesn't stay at home. She's not inanimate. She's just not waiting for you to go knock on her door. She's hunting him down. And man, she's going to turn on the charms. She seizes him. That's beyond charms. That sounds like pretty aggressive. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. She may have even taken a bath. She's ready. She's turning on the charms. She's got all the smells. She's got all the materials. She says, come, let's take our fill of love till morning. Let's delight ourselves with love. For my husband's not at home. And not only is he not at home, he's gone on a long journey. And not only has he gone on a long journey, he took a bag of money with him. He's going to be gone a long time. He's got his coin purse. He's he's not going to be back until the full moon. We're going to have a great time, simple dude. Man, this wily woman is after this guy. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. As a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Remember that phrase. It will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. When we think of idolatry, man, I'm usually thinking about that thing just sitting there that I go after or not. Have I considered, though, have you considered, though, what might drown out the love of Christ and why we might need strength to know and comprehend the love of Christ is the siren call of a thousand suitors after you. That's why we need the love. That's why we need strength and power to hear that one voice because these thousand others... They're in the streets, they're in the markets, they're at every corner. She lies in wait. What was promised here went down with Israel. Jeremiah is a story or one of the many stories about that. Really, a lot of the major and minor prophets are all about how this thing went down and how 
Israel proved to be the foolish son. Listen to three passages in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul, God uses the imagery of, through Jeremiah, he uses the imagery of God being married to his people. And they're talking about divorce here. He's talking about them going into exile. And he's talking about whether or not he's going to take them back or not. Listen to how it goes down in chapter 3, verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You've played the whore with many lovers. You've been the foolish son going out to the streets and the corners and the markets. And would you return to me, declares the Lord. What the nation of Israel was guilty of was making deals with the neighbors, not trusting in God but instead trusting with deal in deals that they could make with their neighbors. It says, lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been ravished? Israel, foolish son, where have you not been ravished? By the waysides, you've sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You've polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Chapter 4, verse 30, he says, And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Now listen to what he says about the lovers. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. Sound familiar? They seek your life. They're not just inanimate objects that we might or might not call an idol. Those things are after you. A crowd of them, a throng of them. And they, here he says, they despise you and they seek your life. In chapter 30, verse 14, he says, All your lovers now have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. We can learn something about those voices and those wily women that are in pursuit of us from this Jeremiah passage. He says, you've been ravished in every place we can think of. Where have you not been ravished? By those lovers. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. And all your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. We often think about things that might compete for our love. But I want you to hear this question. This consideration. We often think about things that might compete for our love. Do we think often enough about what competes with God's love for us? Do we think often enough about what competes with Christ's love for us? The love from the world is in the street, it's in the market. It's at every corner she lies in wait. Victoria's secret is that she wants your heart. I've watched too many people fall to this. I've watched too many men fall to this when another gal shows some interest in him. And he thinks it's love. And he starts listening to that voice over the voice of his wife that said, I promise to be yours, to have and to hold till death do us part. 
I've watched it happen to too many women that are excited somehow by the notion, a guy showed me some attention and that must be love. That's the wily woman just changing gender. That's the wily man. And that's not love at all. But there's an allure of being wanted. The reality is those lovers are fickle. First of all, we need strength from God to hear his love above all others. We need to know that there are a crowd of those lovers in pursuit of our affections. But secondly, what might help with that is knowing that those lovers are fickle. His love's not, though. All those lovers are fickle. I thought it'd be helpful to just consider the uber-loved um, y'all know how I am with sports. I'm big time into sports. Like all the stats and stuff, I just eat those up. I mean, I like all these people in these different sports, you know, and these athletes. I just, I, night and day, I'm just consumed with those stats. So here I'll share with you some, you know, I keep up with like Tiger Woods. Actually, I just watch the news. Just the general news. I don't look at sports. I really don't keep up with that at all. But you can watch the news and you know how it goes for the uber-loved, like Tiger Woods. How it goes for the uber-loved, like Lance Armstrong. Or the uber-loved, like Maria Sharapova. You know how it goes when things go south. Here's how it went for Tiger Woods. Oh, no, well, let me just share with you this. Wikipedia is not a real reliable source for a lot. But you can get some idea about what might be generally true. You can't reference it. Those of you that are writing papers, you know you can't reference Wikipedia on a paper. <laughs> but uh, you can find out some general. Sometimes you'll see some actually hard, cold facts on a, on a Wikipedia page. This morning, I was like, man, I wonder what's up with Tiger Woods. What's his real story? And I went to Wikipedia, and it's just this, you know, volume-wise, it's just whoosh, 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 page and page and page of his accomplishments and all these tournaments and all these things that he's won and all these endorsements and all this money he's made and all this, these amazing things that he's done. And then down at the bottom, here's what it says. On November 29th, 2009, the National Enquirer broke the story. <laughs> they actually had one, but it wasn't about aliens. Published a story claiming that Woods had an extramarital affair with New York City nightclub manager Rachel, I don't know how to say it, Uchitel, a claim she denied. Two days later, around 2.30 a.m. on November 27th, Woods left home in his Cadillac Escalade, and while still on his street, collided with a fire hydrant, a tree, and several hedges. He was treated for minor facial lacerations and received a ticket for careless driving. Following intense media speculation about the accident, Woods released a statement on his website taking sole responsibility for the accident, calling it a private matter, and crediting his wife for helping him out of the car. On November 30th, five days later, Woods announced that he would not be appearing at his own charity golf tournament the Chevron World Challenge, nor any other tournaments in 2009 due to his injuries. On December 2nd, this is what, a week later? Following U.S. Weekly's prior day reporting of a purported mistress and subsequent release of a voicemail message allegedly left by Woods for the woman, Woods released a further statement. There he admitted to transgressions and apologized to all of those who supported him over the years while reiterating his and his family's right to privacy. Over the next few days, more than a dozen women claimed in various media outlets to have had affairs with Woods. On December 11th, 
he released a third statement admitting to infidelity and apologizing again as well as announcing that he would be taking an indefinite break from professional golf. Now listen to what happened next. You already know that he's a household name for infidelity if you watch the news, right? Okay, you already know that. Well, here's what happened right after that. In the days and months following Wood's admission of infidelity, several companies reevaluated their relationships with him. Accenture, AT&T, Gatorade, and General Motors completely ended their, ended their sponsorship deals, while Gillette suspended advertising featuring Wood, Woods. Tag Heuer dropped Woods from advertising in December 2009 and officially ended their deal with his contract when his contract expired in 2011. The magazine Golf Digest suspended Woods' monthly column beginning with the February 2010 issue. 2010 issue. Later on, it goes on to say that he and Nordegren divorced in August 23, 2010. This guy became a household name. He was uber-loved by the world and significant transgressions. But the world is done with him because he ran out of currency. His currency was this clean-cut golf hero, and he messed up his currency. He went bankrupt. The same thing has happened with Maria Sharapova. It happened with Lance Armstrong. What happens to actors who lose their looks? <laughs> There's a thing on Fox that I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I actually look at this on Fox News when it comes up. Stars who lost their mojo. Does anybody else need to confess that they look at that? Where you open them, okay, Morris doesn't. He's shaking his head. You foolish people. I look at it. I'm sorry. And I, I look at it and I cannot believe what happened to this person. Over here, they're young and dashing. And then over here, they look like a bag of donuts. Like they got hit, <laughs> hit by an ugly tree. It's bad news. I mean, climbed the ugly tree and fell. I hit every limb on the way down. And really what happened was life. These people have problems too. Our, our age, <laughs> our food. They actually started eating food. They weighed 100 pounds, and they actually started eating because they couldn't survive. So they look different. But man, what does the world do with them? The uber-loved become the uber-mocked because these lovers, they don't really love you. They want your life. They despise you. They seek your life. They've forgotten you. They care nothing about you. When you get ugly and you've been handsome and dashing and lean and mean, you're thrown away like a cigarette butt and mocked. Man, the world loves you, frankly, until you run out of whatever version of your currency is. And then you find that they care nothing for you. Try this little experiment. Go to the mall, since we've been talking the mall. Go to the mall and go into some of these shrines that he's talking about. Go into some of these little stores and spend a lot of time with those people that are working in there, but don't actually buy something and see what they think of you. <laughs> see how they treat you. They're all friends and all smiles while you got looking like you're going to spend some money, but then you spend a bunch of time with them and say, oh, I don't have any money and see how much they love you. Like, get out of my store. You're wasting my time. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. The lover of the world is fickle, or the loves, lovers of the world are fickle. But Christ's love for us is not fickle. Christ's love for us is not inconsistent. It doesn't wane when we lose our mojo. 
Christ's love for us does not depend on our ability to catch or throw a football or ride a bike really fast. His love for us isn't based on whether we have some currency to give him or not. He's not impressed, in fact, with our serve. He's not impressed with our looks. He's not impressed with our singing voice. And here's the thing that's such an encouragement to me that would be a real, really amazing encouragement to a guy like Tiger Woods. Britt Hume said as much on, on TV. His love isn't damaged when we fail him. Every other love is, isn't it? Every other love is. Name the lover. When you fail him, you're going to pay for it. But Christ's love has already been paid for. His love for you isn't damaged. Not if you fail him, but when you fail him. Man, that's a love I need to hear in clarion. His love is not fickle. His love is not dependent. His love does not wane when I lose my mojo. We need with the Ephesians to be grounded and rooted in love. Real, meaningful, doctrinal realities. Meaningful stuff. Not empty sentiment. Not nice fluffy thoughts, but hard, deep truths of what God has done for us in Christ. We need to experience those things and pursue the love of Christ together with the saints. We need to ask him, give us a love for you or give us a comprehension and an understanding and awareness of the depth of Christ's love for us. We need to ask him to do that for us, to give us ears to hear it above the din of the crowd. Let's pray. God, I need this prayer. We need this prayer. God, I want to pray this prayer for this people right now. Now that we've climbed into it, we recognize there are many competing suitors I ask with Paul, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, I ask as one of our shepherds here, God, that you would give us strength, that you would give us power even, to comprehend and know the love of Christ above all other loves. And Lord, that in that comprehension and that enjoyment and that satisfaction saying, yes, that love is enough, that you would fill us with the fullness of yourself. That we would be that teacup by the ocean. That's completely full. Small and insignificant, but full of a great God. God, I'm thankful for this prayer. I pray that parents this morning have been equipped with how to pray for their children. That wives have been equipped with how to pray for their husbands that husbands have been equipped with how to pray for their wives, that life group shepherds have been equipped with how to pray for their life groups, deacons have been equipped with how to pray. God, I pray that we can pray this prayer for each other and with each other, and that you'll grant it to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements. Matthew chapter 26 tells the story of the Lord's Supper.
Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. This table full of disciples, um, in a lot of ways, was a table full of people that had no currency. In regards to the currency we've been talking about this morning, they forfeited their currency three years earlier when they left their boats or they left their tax collecting booths and followed him. Now, they still had those real human desires, like the sons of Zebedee wanting to sit on the right and the left. You know, they still had those moments where they really apparently wanted some sort of fame and glory. But for the most part, they sat there, a bunch of people at this table with no currency whatsoever. One of the things I enjoy about this table is that as they're sitting here with no currency, it's a great picture for us as we take the Lord's Supper week by week that we come before him saying, Lord, we forfeit whatever currency we think we might have. In terms of what the world says as value, whatever it might be, we count it all not compared to the riches that you have and are and that you've given us in Christ. Week by week, we do this on purpose as a conscious reminder that we have no currency. He's the rich one, remember? After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, drink of it, all of you. For this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I'll tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's a bunch of poor folk with no currency. And currency, thankfully, we don't need. Let's take and eat and enjoy Christ. Let's take and drink. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful your love is not fickle. God, I'm thankful that your love is like no other love that we know or ever will know. God, I pray that Christ's love will be enough for us. Whatever other loves come and go, whatever other currency is spent or not, we're thankful that we can come before you broken, empty pockets, and be loved by Christ, from Christ, and in Christ. We're thankful, Lord, in Christ's name, amen. Let's continue in song.